Welcome to Smalltalk Reflections, a weekly podcast for discussing and promoting the Smalltalk programming language. On this episode, we talk about minimalism. My name is David Buck, and with me today is Craig Latta. Hi, Craig. Hi, David. So how are things going lately? We had our annual recreation of World War II uh, via fireworks for New Year's here. Oh, that sounds cool. So what did they do for recreating World War II? Oh, there's just so many fireworks, you can't believe it. <laughs> Fireworks are legal for three days leading up to New Year's. You're, you're going to make me want to move to Amsterdam, you know that? <laughs> I, I was saying here today we have um, uh, snow and freezing rain, so this is uh, typical Ottawa. Uh, well, you must like it. You've been there a while. Uh, it's a nice country, a nice place to live. I just, at this point in the, uh, in the winter, I just can't wait for spring. <laughs> yeah, well, it just makes it that much nicer when it finally comes. So um, today we're going to talk about minimalism. So I wanted to let you get started and uh, talk about uh, how Smalltalk has a minimalistic philosophy to it. Smalltalk started off with a minimalist philosophy in the sense that it was meant to be understood by individual programmers. And that's a laudable goal. But unfortunately, that led to some strange workarounds to get the system usable by teams and to make it deployable. So one could argue that eventually the minimalist idea became obscured. And if the system had been a bit more complex in the beginning, that it would be simpler now. Yeah, in fact, um, one of the efforts to make it uh, accessible by teams was um, a product by OTI called uh, Envy, Envy Developer. And uh, that added quite a lot of complexity to Smalltalk. Yeah, I think the essential problem was that Smalltalk was initially conceived in an era when networking was just beginning. And ironically, at Xerox Park, where Smalltalk began, uh, Ethernet was also being developed uh, not far away, but it wasn't uh, really fast enough to be used for uh, remote messaging uh, at the beginning of Smalltalk. And so the maxim of everything happens by sending messages kind of had this limit placed on it when you wanted to deal with one programmer's machine communicating with another one. And instead of transferring uh, code changes from one machine to another by sending messages, for example, there were static file-based workarounds for that. Sounds considerably slower. It's true. Um, Ultimately, that that was slower, but you didn't have to deal with the expectation that it would happen as fast as sending a simple message. And people were already familiar with files, and I guess we're used to them creating workflow that had these uh, delays in it. So it, it became acceptable because people were used to text documents, and it didn't seem so strange to think that code could be transferred the same way. But if you were really going to be true to the idea that everything happens by sending messages, then transferring your compiled methods from one machine to another should happen that way too. So how is sending a message different from, let's say, calling a procedure in some other language? Oh, it's not. Um, But what I'm talking about is what do you do with uh, code that you've written uh, when you want it to run on someone else's system, not just yours? Traditionally, what Smalltalk did was uh, make something called a fileout, where source code was filed out into a static file on disk, and you would transfer that disk uh, to another person's machine through some mechanism that was totally outside of Smalltalk, and then they would recompile it. That has two problems. One is 
you're doing work not by sending messages, but by some other means entirely. And you're also recompiling something which probably doesn't need to be recompiled. If your method is going to work the way you intended, then the target system needs to be enough like your own for the thing to compile in the first place. And if that's true, you might as well just transfer the compiled code directly. So what Smalltalk really needed at the, from the beginning was a way to transfer compiled methods by sending messages. And after about 1983 or so, TCP IP was pervasive enough as a networking infrastructure that you could actually do this. I haven't used NV Developer all that much, but I'm guessing that it was not based around remote messages. No, it wasn't. There was a centralized repository. It did use a, um, a messaging or a socket system, a communication system to communicate with the server. But uh, it was more about loading code in from a central repository. But it did load in compiled code. It didn't uh, recompile it on the way in. Oh, okay, so that's good. That's a bit different from Store, which does recompile it on the way in, in general. Mm -hmm. I've been working on a project to bring these ideas to uh, modern small talks, starting with Squeak and then supporting the, all the other ones as well, that brings remote messaging to the areas of change management, team development, deployment, and discovery of code once it's been released by people who want to load it and run it. So um, how, does this, uh, how does this mechanism work? This is your context mechanism, is it? Right. Context is a distribution of Squeak that I'm working on that has these ideas, both of remote messaging-based change management and team development, and also a minimal kernel object memory to start from. Another problem that crept up from having fileouts and making the transfer of behavior from one system to another less fluid is that individual Smalltalk systems grew by accretion and the modular boundaries between different subsystems of code became unclear over time. And after a few years of that, it became quite difficult to separate out one app from another and one framework from another. Yeah, there's always a, a problem with uh, prerequisites. What do you need in order for this thing to run? And as the components got more and more complex or more developed, uh, they needed more and more components below them to run. So they, they brought in all those components. So it's very hard to separate out one part of the system from another. Right. And if behavior you want to transfer between systems has to go through the static file filter, then you lose the power of reflection about other people's systems that you have about your own system. And that complicates the problem of finding the modular boundaries between subsystems. It also complicates the problem of how to prepare something for someone else's system. You can't take into account what they've already got, for example. So do you have problems with uh, differences in versions of source code between one system and another? Right. You can't reflect about what versions of which frameworks uh, a target system already has when you're thinking about what you want to transfer to them. Whereas if you have a message-based way of transferring behavior, then you can have a conversation between two systems, a provider and a target. Not only do you end up with a more accurate result, but you can also spend less uh, network traffic having the conversation. Now, when you have this conversation, if you find that the uh, system you're talking to has an older version than what you would want them to have, would you send them the new version or would you uh, change your messaging mechanism to talk to the old system instead? Do you have to support old versions of the system. Oh, uh, the way I've been proceeding, yeah. The, when it comes to the change management system itself, you want everyone to be up to date. And if someone finds they're not up to date, they just get updated. 
but that's a very small part of the of the system. I sort of meant more about um, applications level software, but then again, uh, every system then, as I understand it, would have different components that it's running, and uh, you don't have all the software on all of the systems. Right. If you want to load a particular version of an app, that version of the app will have a certain set of prerequisites, a certain set of particular versions of particular other modules. And yeah, if you want to load that version of the app, you have to load the right prerequisites. If you have the system completely modularized, then this is not a difficult thing to do. Hmm. Would those prerequisites run on different systems then? Yes. Very interesting. And to make that all work, you need to start from a minimal starting point. So one very important part of the context work was having a minimal kernel object memory. Now, how minimal are we talking about here? You want something that only has what it needs to start up and to have a conversation with another system uh, about loading modules. So it needs to know what modules are and how to have a remote messaging conversation and how to load a module. And once you can do that, then you can load modules that teach it how to unload modules and do everything else, have a, a user interface and anything else you would want. So I, I, as I understand, you've come down to some very, very small images that you can put onto these systems. Uh, for the smallest, let's say smallest usable image, what would be a reasonable size? A reasonable size for a system which could start up and have meaningful module conversations is about 200K. Whereas a system that just starts up and adds two numbers together and then quits is much smaller. It's, uh, it's about a thousand bytes. Yeah, and 200K is not too horrible in this uh, modern era of megabytes and gigabytes. Oh yeah, 200 kilobytes is nothing. Yeah, much different than the days when I was growing up learning about computers. And to me, 64 kilobytes was huge. <laughs> but those were the old days. Yeah, again, in 1979, even at Xerox Park, uh, that would be considered much differently. But now it's nothing. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have small components that are distributed over many different systems now. Um, how, does your, uh, how does your client know which systems are running what software? There's, you mentioned something about discovery. Oh, yeah. When I was talking about discovery, I mean, if you have a, a system and you know there are other systems running out on the Internet and you want to exchange code with them, how do you discover what code they have? The system that I've made is based around using UUIDs to identify modules and classes and being able to express the contents of a module on a web page that can be indexed by search engines. So if you have a particular bit of functionality you want to find, you can just do a normal web search, which will give you the IDs of the modules you want and some seed object memories that are live on the net that can either give you the code directly or direct you to someone closer to you who has it. A bit like BitTorrent. So that uh, web search, is that based on HTTP or is it uh, an XML feed? Or, sorry, is it based on HTML or an XML feed or is it uh, some other format? Oh, right now it's just uh, simple HTML. But you could imagine it being whatever you want it to be, uh, JSON or SOAP. You could probably make some sort of um, RSS feed for it as well if you were so inclined. I don't know if RSS is such an appropriate uh, format for it, though. Yeah. At the moment, what the user sees are documents that describe modules, the, the functionality that a module provides, and gives you a link to click on so you can go and connect your system to another one on the net that has the code so you can have a behavior transfer conversation. I'm James T. Savage, and this is the Smalltalk Jobs Report.
Roussinel, our EU contributor, reports that in Le Mans, France, Infotel Quest is looking for a small talk expert who has experience with VisualWorks, Store, RSM, Subversion, and Jira. Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Ramstad Technologies is looking for a small talk developer who also has experience with SQL and NoSQL. St. Petersburg, Florida, USA. Plasmatherm is looking for a software controls engineer one who has experience with Smalltalk, GUI development, MVC, and has an understanding of development of multi-threaded applications. They are also looking for experience with controls and automation systems, distributed computing, client-server programming, database implementation and usage, software engineering, all phases of software lifecycle, agile development, networked application development, OOAD, reading and writing software requirements and specifications, embedded control for automation and robotics, knowledge of SCADA systems, software development for semiconductor processing equipment and SEC standards, supporting end users, both capturing feature requests as well as fixing deficiencies, and supporting software for manufactured equipment. The jobs listed in the support are just a couple of examples of the small talk positions that are currently open across the world. For more details, read our shared blog at smalltalkjobs.com. Good luck with your job hunting. Uh, I'll say a bit about how I created that minimal object memory. What I did to make a proof of concept was to make a new version of the squeak garbage collector, which treated any method which hadn't been run since a certain point in time as garbage. When you do that, you reclaim those methods, but then also uh, most of the literals in those methods become garbage, and that causes a chain reaction. Once those literals, which are mostly classes, become garbage, then those classes' methods become garbage, and then the literals in those methods become garbage. So that was how I was able to go from a normal-sized squeak system, like 10 megabytes, down to something that only had the code for 3 plus 4 in it. Just by running the garbage collector once, I would uh, clear a mark bit on all the methods in the system, and then use a special VM which set that bit whenever it ran a method, and then had the special collector in it. So that was much faster than the first approach I tried, which was manually removing bits of the system using a remote browser, you know, sort of using the traditional uh, stripping techniques. Um, this way I didn't have to even understand what I was ripping out. If it hadn't been run, it just got thrown away. So what happens then if it gets thrown away and then you subsequently need that code afterward? Well, that means your unit tests that you used to mark the methods you needed uh, weren't complete. And you can do two things. You can either fix your unit tests so that all the methods you do need do get marked, or you can implement some system for swapping code back in on demand. And that, that second thing is useful anyway in other use cases. So I did end up doing that too, but I didn't use it for making my... Uh, smallest possible module-aware system. I just have uh, unit tests which mark everything I need. That's an interesting uh, technique in general to use sort of a, a garbage collection style to detect dead code in software. I'll have to think about that a bit and see uh, if I can use that to determine what parts of a, a larger application are actually not being used 
or not being tested at least by the uh, SUNet test cases. Yeah. And having a system which marks methods that you're running is useful for other things as well. You can imagine using that information live so that running a method not only has the effect of running the code in that method, but also of transferring it immediately to some other system. So you could imagine a use case uh, like you're speaking at a conference and doing a demo. And as you're running your demo, all the code that gets touched by the demo is immediately transferred to everyone who wants it in the audience. So as soon as you're done with the demo, everyone can walk away with that code and run it for themselves in the hallway afterwards. Mm. Very interesting. So what's your uh, plan in for, the, for the future for uh, your context system? Well, I want to release uh, context as a distribution of Squeak uh, that people can use and get some help further developing good tools for teams to use it. I imagine a lot of Envy-style features or store-type features that take advantage of real-time information that everyone in a team can have about what everyone else in the in the team is doing on their systems. You can imagine use cases like uh, you're working on some method and then suddenly the system is notified that another person in your team is working on the same class or on the same methods. And it can tell you that. And then that can stimulate a conversation that needs to happen between human beings. Yeah, currently it's hard to tell, especially in a, a store environment, it's hard to tell that somebody else is actually... Uh, playing around in the same area that you're playing around with. Uh, in Envy, it's possible, but you have to explicitly look for it, which is a bit tricky. But uh, in general, if someone's working on this part of the system, uh, they don't realize that they're conflicting with someone else until after they submit or after they go to publish. Right. Yeah, when you have to wait until the moral equivalent of a file-out to happen, then yeah, you lose a bunch of opportunities for having meaningful conversations between people. And yeah, you have that problem whenever you interpose GitHub into your workflow as well. Although I do want to be able to express the state of a team's work at any time as a GitHub repository as well. That's another thing that I plan to work on. And then I, I want to bring this system to all the small talks, not just to things derived from Squeak. Mm -hmm. So all the small talks, including VisualWorks, VA Smalltalk, uh, perhaps Gemstone? Yeah, exactly. And GNU Smalltalk as well. And clearly Faro. Yeah, that's probably the thing I'll do next uh, after uh, this squeak-based implementation I'm doing. Context has two main parts. The minimal object memory kernel is called Spoon, and the remote messaging-based module system is called NIAD. And NIAD stands for Name and Identity Are Distinct. This is a concept that underlies the ability to transfer compiled methods accurately between systems using remote messages. <laughs> okay. We get away from the idea that our, the names of our classes uh, are constrained because we're going to be transferring code as source, which has to be recompiled. If you don't have to recompile anything, then the names of the classes don't matter. You could call every class in the system the same name if you wanted. It's only for the benefit of human beings what the names are. The execution machinery doesn't care. Now, in order for this to all work, I would assume that you have to have, for instance, uh, Faro-based clients talking to other Faro-based clients or VisualWorks-based clients talking to other VisualWorks-based clients. Otherwise, the, uh, the compiled code would be all different. Uh, no, you just need to send the right thing over the wire. Um, if a Faro-based client, for example, knows that it's talking to a VisualWorks-based client, it can send something different over the wire when you ask for a compiled method. 
uh, as long as it has enough information about the history of the visual work system you're talking about, it can send the right thing when asked for methods. Okay, but then then you'd have to implement a uh, visual works compiler in Faro and a Faro compiler in visual works. No, you just need to be able to transcode Faro compiled methods to visual works compiled methods. So, for example, the Faro system would have to know enough about the visual works instruction set to be able to express a Faro compiled method as a, an appropriate stream of visual works instructions. Okay, so you're talking about manipulating the bytecodes down at that level. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I mean by uh, transcoding compiled methods. I have this feeling that there's there are going to be complexities involved with that that are going to be difficult to uh, overcome. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. But it would be better than the current situation in which there isn't much interaction between the two systems at all. And if there is, it's only at the source code level. Yeah, and uh, with the source code level, even as is, they have to have... Uh, various translation layers, well, layers that will allow interoperability between the different dialects of, of Smalltalk. Yeah, you have to be able to make various claims about the compatibility of key system classes between the two systems. Mm -hmm. So is this uh, your own personal project for now? Or are you getting anyone else involved? Uh, I have some other people involved helping me test it. But once you can actually get a team working on an app uh, using these tools, I hope to get a lot more people involved. But yeah, most people aren't hardcore enough to want to put effort into the system until it gets to that point. And is this going to be an open source facility? Yeah, right now it's an open source facility using the same licensing as Squeak, the MIT style license. Mm -hmm. So uh, right now you're basing it on Squeak. Um, and Pharaoh's your next target, as I understand it. Yeah, and really at the level of the system where I'm making changes, there isn't any difference between Squeak and Faro. They use the same virtual machine, the same instruction set, and their key system classes are, are pretty much the same. Yeah, I can understand that. That's They're very similar down at the, uh, the lower layers. Well, very good. Sounds like a very interesting project. Um, what kind of timeline are you looking at for uh, releasing it, or do you have a timeline? Well, I already have a few releases out, but again, they're sort of meant for, you know, hardcore developers uh, to take a look at. I just released version 4 alpha 1. I like to have some meaningful release every quarter on the equinoxes and solstices, but whenever I have something, you know, interesting to put out in between, I do so. Mm -hmm. So are you doing any uh, actual um, application development on top of this to see how it works for uh, developing real-life applications? I am, although none of them so far, our team projects, uh, they're just me. But I'm working on two music-related apps. One for doing live coding on the internet with other people. I guess uh, social live coding, you could call it. And then the other is just releasing my uh, Quoth system based on executable natural language. It's uh, a pretty tricky set of code that uses anonymous classes a lot. So that's an example of a system that's fairly difficult to release at all using fileouts. And so that'll be a good demonstration of how releasing the system can be a lot easier if you can just deal in compiled methods and class objects directly. It sounds like an interesting project, and uh, I wish you all the best with it. Oh, thanks. I'm sure we'll, keep, uh, we'll, we'll hear updates from you as we get later into the podcast. Yeah. I think that pretty much wraps it up for this episode. Thank you very much, Craig. Uh, you can email us at smalltalkreflections at thiscontext.com. You can tweet me at at buckdk and Craig at C-C-R-R-A-A-I-I-G-G. -G. 
You can visit our blog at smalltalkreflections.blogspot.ca and leave a comment there, or you can post a review on iTunes. Very glad I performed the music and edited the podcast. See you next week. See you next week. Bye.